Hello everyone, it's Dan here with a little pre-show announcement. We're now halfway through series one of Cursed Objects and we're frankly blown away that so many of you have been enjoying it. We're doing a run of 10 episodes for series one, the new episode every Wednesday, and then with your support we'll hopefully get series two going soon after that finishes. Kasha and I created this whole thing ourselves during the grimmest months of the winter lockdown, powered by sheer enthusiasm with no funding, no prodco, as Alan Partridge calls it, no branding consultants, and crucially, zero prior experience of how to record or edit a podcast using two fairly cheap mics and no other specialist equipment or software. But we didn't do it completely alone. A lot of people have commented with genuine surprise at how professional it sounds, if that's the case, it's down to our legend of a producer, Mr. Beatnik, a.k.a. Nick Wilson, the man on the buttons, on the ones and twos, who also crafted our wonderful, chilling and weirdly hummable theme music. I'd urge you to go and check out his monthly NTS show and his longer musical creations on Spotify and on Bandcamp, which might be built more for the club than when you're doing the washing up, but likewise will dazzle you with their energy, their subtle boshiness, and their hypnotically good sound design. His album Honeycomb from last year is a great place to start. So that's Mr. Beatnik. Go and check out his stuff on Spotify and Bandcamp. We also want to give a proper shout out to the multi-talented Archie Bashford, urban designer, landscape architect and general geezer, who created our stunning artwork, taking creative direction from two people with only one art GCSE between them, and inspired by the infamous cursed image that is the Beans Clock which we discuss in this episode, I think. Give it a Google, it's incredibly unsettling. If you'd like to help me and Kasha continue to pour icky, gloopy beans into the normative clock face of Whiggish temporalities, if you'd like to help us make a series two, is what I'm saying, please do consider supporting our Patreon. For as little as £4 a month, you'll get comprehensive reading lists for each episode, you'll get our eternal gratitude, and pretty soon we're hoping to get into creating Cursed Objects merch, our very own cursed objects, so stay tuned for more on that. But most of all we just want to keep making episodes, because already we have a list of cursed objects and themes that would take us well into series 5. We're at patreon.com slash cursed objects. If you can't afford to patreonize us, please do tell a mate, post a tweet or an insta story about the podcast, stand on the street corner and shout into a megaphone about how much you love it, like the bloke from Coney 2012 when he had his meltdown. It all helps. Anyway, that's enough from me. Thanks very much. Here's the episode. Hope you enjoy. And welcome to Cursed Objects with me, Dr. Kasha T. And me, Dan Hancocks. Um, so today we're going to be talking about broadly what makes a cursed object. I have brought along a little Guardia Seville toy. Now, if you don't know much about the Guardia Seville, that's okay. For the time being, just picture a small clockwork figurine, almost like a little Playmobil man, which you can wind up so that it can walk. It's wearing a green uniform, 
an iconic black three-cornered hat that the Guardia Civil are most recognised for. So almost like a Spanish beefeater or Bobby on the beat. And resting between its little hand and shoulder is a teeny tiny bayonet. This is the kind of thing that you can find in different guises, uniforms and roles across Britain and in the world more widely. It came to be in my possession when an ex went to Spain and bought it for me in an airport departures lounge. A kind of weird theme throughout this podcast. Me and him had kind of got obsessed with this blog called Agamben Toys, run by a guy called Lee Phillips. Filled with Playmobil riot police, ATM machines, and what the blog described as apposite baubles for the state of exception. And I know um, that, Dan, weirdly and completely unconnectedly, you were also really into this kind of obscure blog. I was, yeah. This was like years before we met, I think, wasn't it, Kasha? But yeah, Agamben Toys, the Tumblr, may it rest in peace, though some of it is available on the Wayback <laughs> Machine, um, was yeah, just like a really kind of nailed the zeitgeist of the mid-2010s, I think. It was, yeah, a, a really great collection of just horrifying, unsettling, but incredibly believable and plausible uh, objects from around the world. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think cursed objects are, I think we both agree here, the perfect way to describe our historical, but also our contemporary cultural, social and political contexts. So they're a way of like making sense of the now and of the past. Yeah, I mean, we're looking at objects that carry a, a weight of history, of culture, of, of the politics, of the world around them. And when we say cursed, as you say, we're not talking about um, some Wiccan goth kind of <laughs> shit. We're talking about something that is cursed by the sort of the weight of the society around them. And I think for me, like, cursed objects have a dual function. They sort of embody the spirit of the age. And sometimes that spirit is uncomfortable for us to acknowledge as it is here that mm. you know riot police are just something that children should be uh familiar with and mm. will see every day on the streets of their city but as well as embodying it and carrying this sort of weight of culture and society and politics they also help perpetuate it they further mm-hmm. they further it they normalize it so that um for a child uh, growing up it's not something that's scary or at least abnormal to mm. to have you know su- a survey you know police surveillance van sitting outside their house because they've been playing with a toy version of it all morning as well I guess like um the thing for me I think there's like a specific way of thinking about cursed objects in relation to uh, a gambon toy specifically or what we call a gambon toys which we're going to kind of like unpick Mm. um but I think it's kind of like an object that seems everyday, mundane, maybe mm-hmm. humdrum, that's no doubt supported by the fact that you can buy it or variants of it mm. in shops across Britain, across Europe and America and possibly also the world. And I think behind its kind of veneer of normality is something that deeply challenges your political convictions and beliefs. And by politics, I don't just mean like politics with a big P. So, you know, your party politics or the actions of specific governments or Mm. nations, but also kind of like your politics with a small P. So your worldview of the decisions, actions and ways that you and your community organize a perception of your social world is kind of how I understand Mm -hmm. politics with a small P. So it's kind of it unsettles this relation between the two in Mm -hmm. a way. And I don't know whether you saw this, but like a few years ago, the phrase cursed image became really, really popular. Yeah, I'm not sure what 
what the origin of that is as an internet um as an internet phenomenon yeah yeah yeah, yeah. it's obviously incredibly pervasive now yeah yeah and it became quite popular i think one of the things that the first images that i saw associated with that phrase cursed image was like a big clock uh like one that you might find like in a school Mm -hmm. and in between the bottom half of the clock and the kind of glass and the clock face it was filled with like baked beans (laughs) and like (laughs) i know it sounds really trivial and like really silly and i think it's quite hard to articulate why this image is so horrendous but i think it's (laughs) but i think there's like a combination of two things i think like it's because a clocks are like normative symbols of order um but also because b like baked beans are so everyday but so culturally embedded in the lives of British people, however you conceptualise that identity, right? Yeah. Like, really specifically. So I think, like, time is standardised and people can't imagine that form of time, so clock time, not existing. And the thing that's messing with clock time is baked beans. And it's almost like you can almost smell or, like, feel the image. Yeah. You know, it's, like, cold and it's tomatoey and it's sweet and it's cloying. I mean, it's horrifying. I haven't even seen this photo. (laughs) I mean, I also wonder if sort of the prevalence of those kinds of images is a response to the kind of easy availability of genuinely horrifying kind of gore photos from actual war zone, terrorist atrocities, like the, the fact that those are easily and freely leaked and shared mm-hmm. on the internet in response here's something that, that you could actually show as somebody who was eight, eight years old without mm-hmm. sort of permanently scarring them for life but actually mm-hmm. but actually maybe they'd be unsettled in a rather different way for the way that you're talking i you're think talking it, about. i think it operates in a different way so like the thing with the with the beans clock like it's the combination of beans something that we like culturally know so well and a clock, something that gives our lives like unquestioning order. And I think that's why this image feels so like unsettling or, or sure. cursed. Sure. But yeah, I guess for me, this kind of Agamben Toys blog kickstarted an already already kind of developing academic, but also like a personal interest in objects and material culture. So I was like increasingly interested not just in the object as like a thing. So this is what some museums do historically. You know, Mm. they're like, this is illustrative of a type, like this is a type of pot or earthenware Mm. from this time and it's made of brass or whatever. It's my favourite bit of every museum. Oh, yeah, no, yeah, yeah, I really love that (laughs) bit. Um, But I guess I'm kind of more interested or also interested in like objects and their political effects and afterlives. So like the ways that objects, because they're made by humans perfectly capture the tension between contemporary politics with a big P and Mm. personal politics with Mm. a small P. And I guess that within a wider system of capitalist cultural production. Mm. So the conditions within which things are made, how they're made, why, and why they're bought, why people want these things, and then reproduced en masse. I mean, I want to know how this Guardia Civil toy... Which I already so I already knew about the existence of this toy, of course, because Cash and I had discussed it. I did not know that it was found in an airport gift shop, and to me, that's somehow a lot deeper. Like, yeah. like I want to know about the chain of events that led it to be sold there. As a sort of frequent visitor to Spain, somebody who's written a book about Spain and Spanish history, and uh, has always been fascinated with it, which is another story we'll go into another time. I can tell you that the Guardia Civil, like over 150 years old. And they have an ogre-like presence. So this is a militarised police force nationwide across Spain. 
And for a very long period, like, well, as I say, over a century, they have held this sort of identity in the popular imagination that basically is uh, suffused with terror for a lot of people. Mm. They were on the side of, in the, in the pre-democratic period, in the 19th century, they were on the side of the landowners, the local aristocrats, the caciques who are like the local politicians elected usually by a very small proportion of the population. And they were effectively on the side of power against the people. Um, and they wielded that power arbitrarily because, hey, it's the 19th century we, and Spain was not a democratic society at that point. It was an incredibly unequal one. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, while obviously police forces around the world carry a lot of resonance for the people, you know, um, who live in them and a lot of fear is a, a common response to, to the sight of a uniform, mm-hmm. there is something specific about the Guardia Civil in Spain in terms of the... Yeah, the wielding of arbitrary power against the weak and powerless, essentially. So the idea that you would want to wrap up the iconography of this green uniform, their fucking weird hats and so on, (laughs) into uh, a kid's toy Mm. is particularly discombobulating and unsettling for that reason. Even as recently as 2015, there was a scandal in Spain because 25 Guardia Civil officers were photographed posing in front of the last remaining Franco statue in the country. So so there's an association with fascism there Mm. as well. Um, there's, there's this one Franco statue left in Melilla, which is a colonial outpost, which I think is also kind of relevant that, uh, in terms of its location and stuff. So this is not your average sort of Bobby on the beat sort of thing. I, mean, I think the other important thing to say about it is that they look ridiculous, right? Like <laughs> their uniforms are strange. Like yeah, they, yeah, and very they, strange. And they, uh, in the same way that like a, a British beef eater mm. with their... Hang on, have I got that right? What are the ones with the massive kind of woolly yeah, hats? Yeah, that, isn't that... No, is a beefy... I'm uh, thinking of the Buckingham Palace Guards. Yeah, what... So, so what? the Buckingham Palace Guards, that is not... A, surely, I'm not a military expert, that's not practical uniform for going into battle to have like a hat that looks like a Marge, Marge Simpson's hair. Um, <laughs> but they... Yeah, there's a performativity there, I think, in mm-hmm. like in the costume as well, which in a way makes it more appealing for a kid to play with. Kids mm-hmm. love dressing up, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's a... They are sort of play acting themselves, the civil guards. Yeah, for but, sure. Um, I think one of the weirdest things is that when you Google the Guardians Bill, like the image of them wearing this kind of like green un- uniform and this ridiculous hat, there's like a few of those, but often it's just like pictures of guns and men holding <laughs> guns, wearing berets and like looking pretty hard, <laughs> looking pretty like fierce. Mm-hmm. And you just kind of think... It's really interesting that they are wrapping up the image of the Guardia Seville in this kind of like, oh, look, this kind of pageantry. This is safe for your child to play with. But when when you actually see what they are doing and wearing, they're mm. like, yeah, there's like scandals and they're like still a symbol of like power, mm. like oppressive power. Yeah, right. Yeah, they are yeah. like a hand of like the, the repressive state apparatus. Yes. So it's in this way that kind of we look at objects like this and we can see the ways in which the repressive state apparatus becomes like normalized in mm. the cultural products that we consume. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So the ideas that are set and the ideas, values and kind of norms that are associated with those things. Mm-hmm. One thing that kind of needs unpacking is why isn't a gambling toy a perfect example of a cursed object? And indeed, 
what isn't a gambon toy? So like, why a gambon? Who, who's a gambon? And I kind of first learned about him when I was a very lazy undergrad. <laughs> um, but I was like really into the ideas, not really into the reading, but really into the ideas. And um, in his book, The State of Exception, uh, political philosopher Giorgio Agamben questions how and why during times of crisis, governments or branches connected to the nation um, state increase their power. Often they kind of do this by using crisis as a way of establishing rules of order that far extend beyond those previously like established in mm -hmm. law. So historically, um, Agamben looked at Nazi Germany, which he says was a continued state of exception. But as more recent examples, he also looks at like the war on terror following 9-11 and how suspected uh, terrorists and I kind of suggest, or I'm sure he would query that term terrorist quite heavily, mm. how they could be imprisoned in Guantanamo Bay for so long and tortured, even though it contravened all established laws of the Geneva Conventions. So things like extraordinary rendition would be another good example, which, you know, the British government were very much involved in, shout mm -hmm. out David Miliband. But there was also <laughs> like, for me, like, I think learning about what the state of exception was happened after the riots in this country in 2011, when it was quite a specific and forgotten moment in that tumult of like argument and uh, kind of frenzy of arrest that was happening in the weeks afterwards. But I think it was the Conservative Home Office Minister basically went out and briefed the press that the judges should hand down exemplary sentences mm. to the rioters, which, as far as I understand, breaks all precedent in terms of like governmental interference in judicial sentencing. Mm. Like basically, to put it simply, ministers are not supposed to tell judges what sort of fucking sentences to give, mm. but they did for mm. political reasons. Mm -hmm. And that is um, a suspension of, I mean, there was a number of suspension of norms after that. Mm. Um, after that moment of the riots, which were broadly tolerated by, you know, a nation of people who were obviously like upset, somewhere between upset and appalled about mm. what was happening. Mm -hmm. I mean, COVID's a really interesting <laughs> kind of way of thinking about the state of exception as well, actually. I was trying to kind of pass that uh, in my head last night. Like, we have got a number of norms that have been suspended this year, but I think it's probably fair to say that's been largely done with the consent of most mm -hmm. people because mm -hmm. we understand that we're not that we're doing it for a social good, mm. i.e., to save the lives of the old and the and the sort of you know medically vulnerable. Um, therefore, yeah, we're not going to go out and join large crowds and lick strangers and so forth. Speak for yourself, like we, like we normally would. <laughs> Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I suppose that's why kind of the, you know, the the COVID related legislation, which has banned sort of, or certainly made much more difficult various types of public assembly have been accepted by the left and mm. by liberals mm. who would normally object to this sort of thing on civil liberties grounds. And in fact, the people that are objecting to the COVID state of exception are, uh, you know, cranks, basically yeah. like right-wing cranks and Piers Corbyn. Yeah. You know, those, those are the people that are saying like, you know, you're oppressing our British freedoms to, you know, catch a 
disease and die or whatever yeah yeah because yeah. actually my um my friend um Malena Lamb she's an amazing philosopher and she interrogates the ways in which the police are responding to COVID and how uh-huh. they use the idea of like public order as a way to extend uh, extend their power not I mean I'm not trying to say power in the sense that they're like, yes, we're going to take over the world kind of power, but the ways in which they can police or they can uh, restrict the movements and kind of lawful movements of people by kind of talking about or proclaiming this idea of public order, like, oh, you're contravening public order. But there is not really much of a precedent to how how and why that public order looks in the way that it does. Mm -hmm. So the ways in which police use COVID as a way to say, no, you're not allowed to. And there were loads of scare stories about it, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, which Mm -hmm. is like, no, you're not allowed to go in your car. No, you're not allowed to do this. And you're not allowed to do that. You know, anything where if you were like not in your house was policed quite heavily Mm -hmm. under the guise of public order. Yeah, I mean, particularly if you were like young and black and living in in London. Especially, yeah, 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 especially so. So I guess the thing is, is that like we're talking about more general ways in which societies are kind of managed, but I think Mm -hmm. also the ways in which big events that affect uh, societies and cultures come to be, as times of crisis come to be politicized and Mm. then used to further powers, right? Mm -hmm. But I guess the way that I kind of learned about it or effectively understood it uh, when I was an undergrad was I spatialized it. What do you mean by spatialized it? Okay, so the ways in which I understood this kind of fairly complex idea of the state of exception was to think about specifically about concentration camps. Mm -hmm. So we could think about the Nazi concentration camps, but we could think about any of the camp systems, Mm. like gulags, for example, but Mm. also the camps that the British ran in the uh, Boer War, for example. The ways in which these camps are outside of the normal realms of law and order, that they so transgress those boundaries of law and order that they kind of occupy or set their own kind of exceptional precedents right Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so I guess if we're thinking about you know something that listeners might be most familiar with which is Nazi Nazi concentration camps Mm. um, during the second world war uh, some listeners might have heard of the phrase planet Auschwitz which basically relates to the ways in which the rules of the camp so camp life were explicitly outside of any realms of law and were instead intrinsically based on exceptional violence Mm. so and Agamben is particularly interested and concerned with violence like Mm. violence as a way of uh, controlling people, states, Mm. people and states, basically. It's what makes the extraordinary rendition examples particularly strange and unsettling and sort of a story of the 21st century is that the space in which the alleged terrorists were flown to is unknown. Yeah. Isn't that weird? That they were like, we'll we'll take them somewhere outside of the jurisdiction of of America and Britain, Mm. but no one's going to find out where. So effectively, mm-hmm. they will be flown to these spaces. And mm-hmm. obviously Guantanamo is another good example you mentioned. But but at least we know where that is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and like reporters have attempted to get in there, human rights lawyers have attempted to get, you know, to sort of monitor what happens in there. Yeah, and I, I guess kind of like maybe a slightly more like mundane example is the way I always think about it is airports. Okay. <laughs> like airports in general, which I think really operate in a really strange kind of state of exception way. They're really outside of the norms of like regular life. And I don't just mean that like, you know, when you, you can like rock up having just woken up at like 4.30am and like get a pint in an airport and no one seems to care. Um, <laughs> like, I mean, um, that is obviously clearly a cultural point about <laughs> 
that's so weird, right? That's so true, yeah. But like, they are such strange places. Like when like terror attacks were increasingly on the kind of public imaginary, they were like reported on quite frequently. It was like one of those things where I, and I've spoken to friends about this, where you'd be in an airport and you'd be like, don't think about, don't don't say the word bomb. Don't say, like, of even course, even just yeah, say yeah. it because it was so on your mind because in all the newspapers, it's talking about, it's the relationship between airports and bombs. And you have mm. to go through this security process where you have to take off your shoes. They check all of your luggage for bombs, but you're not allowed to say the word bombs <laughs> in case someone goes, they've said bombs, they've got a bomb. And you don't have a bomb, but you can't even talk about it I because mean, it's such an exceptional, the, the ways in which it's structured are so, yeah, like, yeah. unwrittenly exceptional, you know? As if, as if, like, the primary action of a terrorist upon trying to bomb an airport yeah. would be to walk in be like, got a bomb. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I mean, and um, and not one on, on that subject, like, one of the glorious things I discovered on the Agamben Toys Tumblr back in the day when it was still functioning was the Playmobil City Life Airport Security Check-In. A lot of the toys that Lee Phillips found or was sent were, were sort of ex- an expression of violence. And we'll mm. talk a bit about, you know, war toys and toy guns and stuff in a moment, I think. But this was like a crushingly sort of banal example mm. of an Agamben toy. There's not any actual, there's no guns as part of this kit. You've got like three Playmobil figures and you've got a airport security check-in with the sort of luggage carousel. Scanner, yeah. And the scanner, the scanner for the luggage, but then also like one of the other Playmobil security guards has a uh, a sort of wand, a, mm. a scanning wand to, to check over the, the citizen. Um, and this is another like perfect example of something that just surely would not have existed until after 9-11 and the real world security clampdowns that that followed 9-11 yeah. and the war on terror and it's 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 deeply unsettling because it's so banal i mean it speaks to something that mark fisher was really interested in before his death which was the boring dystopia mm-hmm. you know the idea that actually when the dystopia arrives it's not going to be about gulags and concentration camps and militarized police but it, or maybe it will, but it will also manifest itself in bureaucratic drudgery mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, and and a, a toy for children where they can play at like securitized war on terror life mm. is uh, is a really good example of that. I think. I think also the the thing that I find so weird about this toy specifically is the ways in which. I mean, to remove the luggage because there's like a little toy luggage in the kind of luggage scanner. And it could just be like any kind of metal detector that you do see frequently in London. Mm. The ways in which predominantly black male youths are scanned Mm. um, constantly, stopped and searched and like made to walk through metal detectors constantly. To go to school, let's not forget. To go to school. So like some of the kids that might plausibly be playing with this will a few years later or possibly even at the same time be attending schools where um, a security apparatus is part of the entrance procedure. I'm pretty sure... Mm. I'm wondering if my school has that now. It certainly didn't in the 90s. <laughs> I can mm. tell you that much. I think, I think, yeah, like quite a few do now. Yeah, and yeah. it's and it is quite terrifying well, and there's that, a di- that this is a toy and there's yeah. a direct correlation exactly. between the experiences of young, particularly black youth, mm-hmm. and these and engagements with these, well, yeah. potential engagements with these things. The fact that they exist is, is yeah. messed up. Yeah, absolutely. 
So how did these toys specifically represent the idea of the state of exception? Because obviously we're talking about the state of exception and we're kind of making this link, but I wonder whether we can spell it out a little more clearly. So I was thinking that if we bring in our kind of cultural st- cultural studies analysis in, um, so the state of exception can often become a prolonged state of being. So the kind of frequency of having uh, body scanners is something that is kind of everyday and common for many people now. This is part of their like normalized lived experience. And as such, I think it creeps into the cultural products of the nation. So institutions that have made uses of the state of exception Police forces, armies, governments, maybe banks, you know, following the financial crash, creep into mass produced Mm -hmm. and consumed objects. And I think that it's, I think an interesting and related phenomena is what Graham Dawson has called the pleasure culture of war. So this is kind of, I think, maybe where the state of exception all these toys are kind of building on so for him it's kind of the pleasure culture of war are the ways in which war becomes normalized legitimized perpetuated but crucially also enjoyed by young and he's kind of talking specifically about young males who are seen as and begin to see their own role as future soldier heroes of Mm -hmm. the nation. And the historian Michael Paris uh, kind of has shown how this really kicked off in the 1850s during the Crimean War, when patriotic and jingoistic fervor like really reached a crescendo. So it kind of became like the ways in which people supported a kind of British expansionist policy really became embedded within the cultural products of the nation. I remember actually being bought by my grandparents a uh, like hardback comic anthology boys own type comic. Is that mm-hmm. is that a thing? Yeah, 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 yeah. That is a thing. That's yeah, what it's yeah, called. Yeah. Um, which had which had Roy of the Rovers is like the famous kind of football mm-hmm. one. Mm-hmm. But some of the other comic stories in this collection were tales of heroism from World War Two, which to mm-hmm. me seems mental now that that was something that like was part of my yeah yeah part of my sure. kind of cultural upbringing was was to I mean I'm, you know I'm 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 sure it wasn't because my grandparents consciously thought it's about time he learned about yeah. heroism in World War Two you know they lived through it obviously. But, but it's, it it's embedded just, in lots of people's cultural yeah, experiences. Yeah, yeah. Like if you think about even engagement with like an organization like the Scouts, if you grew up and went to the Scouts, like the Scouts were founded on that kind of actually that principle of of, of jingoism and right. like, um, oh, we're going to make use or we're going to turn our children into like crafty, handy warriors because if ever they need to, then they can serve the nation. When, they, when their plane goes down over like a foreign territory, yeah, they'll, yeah, know, yeah, they'll yeah. know how to like build a fire and sing. I mean, we can get onto the scouts and the history of the scouts in another episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely, sure. absolutely fucked, basically. <laughs> um, but I think what's kind of interesting specifically about what Michael Paris and Graham Dawson more broadly are kind of thinking about and saying is that different cultural products show that war has always been a kind of acceptable extension of national policy. And I think in Britain, we've kind of got this idea that, oh no, we're very temperate, but actually the British were such a warring nation. War was often very rarely the last resort and and often the first resort. And I think the acceptance of conflict was kind of so commonplace among everyday British people historically that war and preparation for war became 
deeply embedded in cultural products, particularly in the cultural artifacts that created for the youth of the nation. Mm. And this is a culture that transformed war into an entertaining spectacle. And it reconstructs battle specifically as a kind of exciting adventure narrative. Mm -hmm. So it's not about death. It's not about people losing their limbs. It's not about pure fear and terror it's about it being like really jolly and like fun you know like oh yeah just gonna go in there and i'm just gonna like cut some people down or shoot some people and then just and then just bounce like and you're saying the kind of products that this was sort of manifested in in the late 19th century and then on into the 20th century is sort of for kids, mm. is toys, but it's also things like comics and stuff. Is yeah, that right? yeah, yeah, yeah. So it extends like to a whole range of cultural products, and these cultural products really sold the idea that war was natural, normal, but mm-hmm. also like exciting, brave, mm-hmm. fun. That it wasn't war at all, really. It yeah, was yeah. like a tale. It was an adventure narrative. Mm-hmm, it wasn't mm-hmm. really about that. It was about the fact that like you could tie a knot in something, and then you know like win the day or save the day or, or you know just from tying a knot just so from that, tying so a that, knot so that's how you go from being a scout to a soldier <laughs> that's how you go from being a scout to a soldier yeah, yeah, yeah essentially yeah so I think like as you kind of said that this is like particularly pronounced following the second world war and I think mainly because because obviously I've thought a lot about this being a historian yeah um Just because there was so much culture about, (laughs) there was more culture about, and by that I kind of mean that the means of production and technologies after the war shifted so significantly um, after the war. And new materials, particularly like plastic, for example, Mm -hmm. that could be mass produced, were used in the kind of later post-war years. And these were kind of mass produced, like airfix kits or action men or TV shows. But Mm. also because of the baby boom, there were more kind of willing young people to buy all of these products. With a disposable income. With a parent with a disposable income. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you you know, you're looking at sort of around the same time that the invention of the teenager Mm -hmm, sort of, mm -hmm. you know, arrives because kids might actually have some spending power themselves when Mm. when they're a bit older. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So I think it like really, yeah, it really reaches its heights in kind of the 50s, 60s and 70s. It's like, you know, a really solid period of time where like the war is, the Second World War specifically is everywhere. So it's like something that I um, always put in my lectures actually whenever I'm talking about this subject so um there's this guy Harry Pearson he's written a memoir called Achtung Schweinhund a boy's own story of imaginary combat and I just think it's like a really interesting reflection on this kind of pleasure culture of war thing and in it he says um and he's talking about his daughter and he says when I was Maisie's age and she's about eight they didn't teach you about the war the war was all around you your body absorbed it like vitamin d We watched it on the TV and at the cinema. We read it in comics and listened to the grown-ups talk about it. The names of planes and battles were part of our everyday vocabulary. To us, Cromwell was a tank, not a Puritan regicide. When we saw a lemonade bottle floating down the river, we yelled, Sink the Bismarck! and threw stones at it until it smashed. The 60s was an era of sweeping social change, but we spent our childhoods staring backwards. The swinging 60s, my friend TK is fond of remarking, not in Walsall they didn't, buddy. TK <laughs> TK is 10 years older than me, but I feel the same way. 
To me, the summer of love was a six-week school holiday filled with stickers, swastikas and bazookas. <laughs> That's absolutely wild, isn't it? It's just a completely different um, sense of what the 60s meant from like any you know clip show filled with like the Rolling Stones and like Kings Road Chelsea or whatever. Yeah, for sure. And like what I think is like really important about it is that it shows that like the war or kind of big cultural events like that are not just learn about. So like you don't learn about them from just reading a book, but they're like culturally experienced in a way, yeah, which they, I think is so fascinating. Yeah, they 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 suffuse like the air. They kind of impart themselves into like every molecule around you essentially yeah and like when I was actually when I was doing my research um in the Imperial War Museum what I found so interesting is that like I talked to curators who had been like older curators who'd been there since like I don't know the late 80s and I just realized I could never no matter how many books I read how many films I watched or documentaries I could never ever match their level of knowledge about all of the kind of material culture of war, like the tanks and the planes, there was just no way I could ever know any of that stuff or to even to the degree that they did because they learned about it. It was so culturally embedded for how they learned about it. Because, do you mean because of, it was generational? Because it was generational, because because, because yeah. when they grew up, there were like, you know, a, a, however many channels on the television and quite a lot of them showed they, old war films. They all had war on yeah, all the all time. Yeah, they all had war on all the time. <laughs> so it's quite interesting, you know, like the ways in which like it is quite generational. That Could you theorise that part of that is about processing the sort of trauma for the generation that didn't? live through it or perhaps did live through it or is it about the the generation that did you know fought and died and and sort of suffered trying to pass on some of that legacy well no I think there's like there is undeniably a strong intergenerational link about Mm. how these cultures pervade right so the fact that your grandparents bought you this almost like boys own style thing is is a kind of testament to that intergenerational Mm. um history to to the ways in which cultures continue right Mm. but I think that also um perhaps it was a response but I think the ways in which many children during that time the war was embedded in their cultural landscape like they would play in bomb sites and it was so and 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 particularly because of the cold war there was this and like spying the Mm. idea of spying was really really popular and and escape stories you know things that you could because you can you can escape from like Holditz Castle using like a bit of string and a bed sheet you know all things that you can find in your kitchen in your kitchen drawer that's like filled with all the rubbish that you never really use you know like all the like spare keys and bits of string and whatever is that not a board game as well escape from Colditz? that was a board game yeah 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. that was a board game it was a tv show it was a film it's like actually one of the most mass reproduced i think like products of the of related to the second world war like it had it was had phenomenal intertextual translation so it like Mm. literally could like be used because it's basically an adventure narrative of escape isn't it yeah, yeah like it's you can you can adapt it to anything which particularly if it has a macgyver type appeal of like yeah the, you know you don't need sophisticated yeah equipment to play this game yeah, yeah yeah exactly some historians have argued that because of the cold war quite a lot of the transformative potential of the second world war was never really realized like it mm-hmm. could have been realized in a way so uh, women are like mass mobilized during the second world war but then 
soon after they like are like they are confined back to the domestic sphere mm, mm. do you know what i mean yeah. so like and that's and and that is like facilitated in many ways by the development of the cold war mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. a lot of the things that could have been realized or could have been done never kind of materialized because after one it plunged straight into this other war so actually looking back to the second world war was quite it was quite a useful way i think for children to imagine their social world because they're getting mm-hmm. all of these like they're being told in this kind of like, or have you have you seen the comic um, that Raymond Briggs um, drew, the amazing kind of graphic novel called When the Wind Blows, which is like the 1980s-ish? I'm, I'm fully aware of what it contains and it just looks too harrowing to, yeah, to, yeah. to, to read or indeed watch. There's a so it's like there's this, an animated version. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So well. it's like yeah. this old... No, I'm, I'm aware it, it looks just too upsetting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's like this old couple and he's kind of, you know, he's kind of taking... He's kind of taking the piss out of this. It's well, he's not taking the piss. It's like a satire of the fact that like there's this old couple and they keep talking about the Second World War and, t- and making their terms of reference like, well, you know, we'll just do what we did in the Blitz. And then a nuclear bomb goes off and obviously they can't they can't do what just happened in the Blitz because it's a completely different type of warfare, right? Interesting. I didn't know about that contrast. Yeah, and then the, I mean, you know, no spoilers, but they well, spoilers. They slowly die of radiation poisoning. Yeah, but, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. But a significant way in which people made sense of the reality of the Cold War, which was super weird, you know, having to um think about or getting these leaflets through the door from the government that are like what to do in the event of a nuclear threat. You know, people with genuinely terrified Mm. in like the 1950s and Jonathan Hogg has written about this really amazingly in the 1950s there were a family that there were two parents who killed themselves and their two children because they were like it's going to be another thing and we just can't deal with the the threat of nuclearity it's just too much and this was a really pressing fear for so many people so in a way that culture never really changed it Mm. it kind of continued Mm. Um, so in a way, as we've moved away from those wars, war years, and to be honest, these still obviously have a strong cultural relevance, um, and there's been a kind of really popular disapproval of wars recently, so particularly following Iraq and Afghanistan, mm-hmm. although interestingly not the Falklands when the reverse was true. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we've seen a kind of broad move away from the pleasure culture of war described by Dawson and Paris in the kind of post-war period. It still exists, but a lot less uncritically. Like it is, mm. it is much more readily critiqued than it once was. But I think that we can see the presence of these kind of toys and of guards and machines or whatever. So maybe we're kind of moving away from the pleasure culture of war and instead are moving towards what we might think of as a pleasure culture of the state of exception. So what you mean is fewer GI Joes and more sort of you know, airport security toys. Yeah, absolutely. So like the ways in which this state of exception is legitimised, perpetuated, but crucially also enjoyed by members of society. Yeah, so I I actually spoke to Lee Phillips, the guy that Mm -hmm. founded the Agamben Toys Tumblr, and he he said to me that, in fact, I'll just read out what he said. He said, to to some extent, soldiers and guns have always been a part of the pantheon of toys, from Action Man and G.I. Joe to Cap Guns and Water Guns. But it was the normalisation of riot police and post 9-11 airport security as concepts for play that I just thought suggested something was not quite right. Mm. And that is a really interesting shift, I think. Um, As you say, like the change reflects something of a change in the attitude to war in certainly in the West anyway. And we see that in some of the kind of examples that are on the Agamben Toys Tumblr or were some of the things that I found just from looking around on Amazon. Um, so there's things like 
I've alluded to Playmobil Riot Police, but I think it's worth saying that some of the little accessories they have are things like protective vests, actual little mini plastic riot shields, batons, guns with like torchlights attached, and dogs. These are this is for recommended age of four to ten years. This is part of the city action subsection of Playmobil. Mm. So like Playmobil also do cowboys and you know fairy castles and stuff mm. as well. But there is a specific subsection of toys called City Action, which is quite interesting in terms of what that reflects about you know the the move from kind of mass mobilization wars of the 20th century mm. to a securitized and surveilled 21st century um you know the threat as understood i think by military figures and governments mm. is much more around you know lone actors um mm. cells of terrorists and so on uh, and so another toy that's part of this series is the Playmobil police station with prison attached wow. And that uh, is a, an astonishing example of a gambling <laughs> toy. It's got kind of satellite dishes uh, and CCTV uh, in in a sort of um, attached to sort of the roofs of the bits of this prison. Um, there's a control tower that's part of it that has two computers on the desk. Uh, one of them is displaying a kind of map. Um, so this is all part mm. of the surveillance culture. The arrestee, this is this is amazing, is like a skater punk guy with like a black and red um, <laughs> kind of outfit, um, and he uh, he's got his own skateboard as well. He's ba- he's basically sort of Antifa, I would say. Yeah, he's, he's got not- a strong Antifa like aesthetic for and, sure. And it's really interesting that like part part of the this toy, which costs seventy quid on Amazon at the moment, down from seventy nine ninety nine. Mm-hmm. If you're looking for some Christmas toys, um, uh, the, yeah, the the command tower is described as state of the art, which is really interesting in terms of like a reflection of the technologizing of police work and like this sort of fetishization of a really high tech mm-hmm. approach um, to policing that goes with the surveillance culture that pervades most cities now you know i mean mm-hmm. i feel like i repeat this once a week but london was the most surveilled city mm. in the world at the turn of the century turn of the millennium it's now been overtaken by um a few chinese cities mm. who have like upped their game as they were. <laughs> but yeah that's sort of it's things like that and it's things like air, the airport security set that playmobil produced there's also a police roadblock set um, which comes with riot dogs and those kind of road spikes, oh my God. Um, flashlights, and of course guns. It sort of suggests some kind of urban unrest. Like I can't, mm. I can't imagine why else you would need a roadblock mm-hmm. set. Like, mm-hmm. like you know, what what sort of imagined mass unrest are they trying to contain here? Yeah. Um, I mean, maybe it's a criminal on the loose. I suppose is is the story that kind of underpins yeah. the creation of that toy. But yeah, there's there's sort of there's also an undercover car I managed to find as well. Like so, sorry, a police undercover car with like a right. plainclothes police officer, <laughs> incredibly sinister. But you know, you still got like a little handcuff toy as well. And there's also American and Australian border police cars that I managed to find as well, which is a, another interesting sort of re- reflection of the of the zeitgeist. I think what is so uncomfortable about so many of these objects but particularly the kind of border patrols is the ways in which like recent I mean this blog was kind of started 
however many years ago, right? It was kind of... 2013. 2013. Yeah, so, yeah, like, yeah. you know, seven-ish years ago, but yeah. maybe, like, we kind of discovered it slightly after that or mm. around then. I can't really remember. But, like, one of the weird things is that the the norm, the political norm has developed so significantly you mm -hmm. know since like donald trump's build the wall but also the horrendous policies in australia and the ways in which they patrol their mm -hmm. borders police their borders mm -hmm. it, these are processes that are underpinned by pure violence mm -hmm. by the separations particularly you know um donald trump and and ice um, mm -hmm. their kind of border control force underpinned by more recently the separation of families, mm. some as young as like six months old, kids in literal like camps, you know? I mean, and when it comes to, yeah, when when the lived reality that these toys reflect also affects children, as you're mm. describing, there's just, there's irony layered upon irony there, but there's also, it's, it's just incredibly discomforting, isn't it? Mm. To sort of, to think about that connection and going back to sort of what i was saying at the beginning about kind of normalize you know the way that these toys help normalize the sort of lived reality mm. for kids you know which i think children have always played with maybe you could speak to this a bit more as a historian but children have always played with a mixture of toys that suggest total escape and fantasy mm -hmm. And then very banal everyday stuff, right? Mm -hmm. So like playing with a with a kitchen, kitchen sort of set, setup, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, whatever. Um, Although it's not that banal fancy when you think that more women are bought the kind of kitchen of setups, course. or more more female children are bought those kind of kitchen sets mm -hmm. than than male children. Well, so they're normalising something as well, right? They're normalising mm. like what will be according to the ideology of mm. the sort of society that produces them. Mm. That will be the lived reality you know and and i mean i suppose it it maybe almost goes without saying but all of these toys are ideological they're deeply mm. ideological about perpetuating mm. um the kind of political and social and cultural reality of the world around them but yeah i think it's that it's that change after 9-11 that i think is so striking mm, so in these toys like it's hard to imagine these sorts of very sophisticated detailed mm -hmm like toy riot police and surveillance mm -hmm. squads mm -hmm. existing in 1970s kind of, um, you know, manufactured plastic toys. Mm. I think like when you were talking now, I was thinking about, and I think this is a really important point to make, is how much we over-determine the causality of this. So how much we over-determine, oh, so kids are playing with this, so they will become <laughs> cops in the future or they will become riot police or or they will think it's normal. Because I think often what a lot of adults can do is that they don't actually, they don't really consider the experiences of childhood mm. and they kind of just like project their anxieties onto the ways in which children engage with things, right? So I don't, I don't want to, and I know you're not doing it. You're, we're you're, not literally yeah, saying. We're, yeah, we're not that, literally that saying that children every, will become like, yeah, will, will become cops. No, it's more that, it's more that um, this tells us a story about the world that we live in, which is ultimately mm. what we're trying to look at with cursed objects in mm. general, mm. I think. Um I also wanted to ask you kind of what it is about these toys that make us feel so uncomfortable. And so my my thoughts on like spending a harrowing hour or two looking through Amazon <laughs> yesterday <laughs> was that, you know, the, the maybe the reason that things like the Guardia Seville toy um, are discomforting is that it's about, a, for us as adults specifically, mm -hmm. is that, that, that what we're seeing is kind of like the sullying of the innocent world 
of the children of children's play with the realities of a grown-up world from which we'd probably like to shield them you know mm. it's kind of like there's an intrusion of the of the unsafety of grown-up land mm. it, um into you know the world like the play of under 10s and the fact that it's not fairy princesses and spaceships and other such sort of escapist stuff but the boring dystopia of adulthood under late capitalism you know the moment where we grow up and we stop dressing up like cowboys fairies mm. or indeed the guardia seville which i think you can also do mm. if you want to mm. but that actually we're we're upset not because every kid that plays with this with these toys is going to become a riot cop mm. but we're upset because they should have more time before they have to have the boring dystopia normalised for them. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. Because I don't think it's... Yeah, again, it's not about the fact that, like, um, that children actually use and play with these things per se, right? The fact that they do is somewhat unsettling, but only because it's adults who have made these and (laughs) then given it to them, right? So it's not actually the ways in which children, like, maybe use these things or, I mean... I think that would take much more of a kind of study in the ways in which children, because children are also like, I think the ways in which we protect, we do protect and project onto children, Mm -hmm. but they behave in really complex ways. I mean, I feel like if, if someone bought me this city action police station with prison, I'd probably lose the majority of the pieces and then, you know, like eat a few of them. Yeah. (laughs) And then like the roles would be reversed. So the Antifa becomes like, I don't know. It's like, you know, or like I'll I'll watch like Spider-Man and then get really into Spider-Man and then suddenly all of them are Spider-Man or something like that. You know, the ways in which children kind of relate to these things is not, it's not about the ways in which the children use them. It's about the ways in which adults produce and supply these children with this toy and it's, Mm -hmm. or with these toys. And it's exactly what you say about the boring dystopia. It's Mm. about the ways in which adults project their Mm -hmm. boring dystopia on yeah. anyone actually, <laughs> anyone think, that'll listen absolutely I think you're right I think you know kids can transcend in exactly the way you're describing if someone's if a kid's bought this city action police station with prison there will be suddenly you know like a fairy horse that has has r- mm. ridden into the prison and has mm. liberated it and actually the imagination of of young children is is liable to 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 do exactly that act of transcendence mm-hmm. and really this is about us and about our anxieties about the world that we live in for sure mm-hmm. for sure i think that's exactly what they are that's exactly what they're doing in that really uncomfortable way <laughs> 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 which is what makes them so interesting i think um i mean one thing i just want to kind of end on is that maybe there is a kind of like pleasure culture of the state of exception that has always existed in a banal way, but people just haven't done the work on it, you know, because it's so boring. (laughs) Not that it's so boring, but like the subject matter of the toys is like be a bank clerk or like, you know, maybe these things have always existed, but there is less kind of impetus on thinking about the ways in which like the meanings that they're imbued with. But Mm. I guess maybe post 9-11, the way these objects look is like, particularly more stark i mean one thing that lee phillips found and put on his tumblr on the agamben toys tumblr was a my first atm machine yeah which yeah. is which is you know that's not about a 
pleasure culture of violence or war that is an inc- that is a boring dystopia toy par excellence really yeah. isn't it like, <laughs> like oh you're yeah you're seven but you've got to get used to like yeah. withdrawing money working <laughs> consuming and you know living under late capitalism now so yeah. here you go be like, enjoy be like, like mommy and daddy and take some cash out <laughs> um but yeah i guess that's it for this week Thank you for joining us. Thank, yeah, thanks so much for joining us on, on Cursed Objects. Please check out the Patreon and our socials and uh, we'll be back next week. Bye. <laughs>